This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by the Gunnison Crested Butte Tourism Association. Single Tracks readers rate the Crested Butte Gunnison Valley area in Colorado one of the top five mountain bike destinations in the world. If you're planning a trip to Crested Butte or the Gunnison Valley, be sure to get the CBG Trails app for Android or iPhone. It's the only complete map app covering all 750 miles of single track in Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley. You can even earn prizes for unique trail miles ridden. Learn more at mtbhome.com slash app. That's mtbhome.com slash app. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today Aaron and Greg and I are going to be talking about mountain bike mistakes and how we can learn from them. So mountain biking, as a lot of us probably already know, has a steep learning curve and there are definitely mistakes that are bound to be made along the way. So with that in mind, we're going to run through a number of mistakes, some of which we've made ourselves and have learned from, and hopefully our listeners can learn from them as well. So I'm going to start off with a big mistake that a lot of beginners make when getting into the sport, and that is buying the absolute cheapest mountain bike or bike parts uh, that they can find. Do you guys have any experience with that, and why might that be a bad idea? Yeah, well, you know, you get what you pay for, like so many things in life. And, you know, this isn't to say that you need to buy all XTR or XX1 Eagle components. You know, there's a lot of components there in the mid-range, and they are so good, really. I mean, um, I mean, honestly, my personal bikes, the ones that I spend my own money on, you know, they sport a lot of uh, Shimano SLX and SRAM GX components because the stuff just works. It's marginally heavier than the uh, higher end groups and it's a fraction of the price. So you're getting, you know, 97% of the performance for 30% of the price. It's pretty, uh, pretty hard to beat that ratio. Yeah, this is a tough one because, you know, I'm not sure that this is always a mistake because sometimes, you know, you can only afford a certain amount of mountain bike and maybe that's the cheapest bike out there. But then, you know, if it turns out you're breaking stuff all the time and that you wish that you weren't doing that, then maybe, you know, you learn from that and then buy a bit more expensive bike the next time around. But, you know, with a lot of mistakes, like hopefully we can help you avoid some of them, but sometimes you have to make the mistake in order to learn from it, you know, um, and to understand it firsthand yourself. And sometimes, you know, maybe the cheapest bike or the cheapest parts are all you can afford at the moment. And for me, at least any mountain bike is better than no mountain bike, but totally agree with Aaron's take on the mid-range stuff. That's why I use most of the time. Yeah. Where I've been running into this recently is with a lot of the sort of no-name, direct-from-China products that are on Amazon. Particularly, I guess I'll just stick with lights for mountain biking. You know, we reviewed, I think it was like a $17 set of lights for mountain biking. And while they worked, you know, it turned out they were really unsafe. And we started hearing stories about other people who, you know, started fires while they were charging the lights and things. And Honestly, I can afford a light set that that costs fifty dollars, say, or a hundred bucks, um, and so I don't necessarily need to get that seventeen dollars set. And a friend pointed out that, that that same light set was on sale. I forget. I think it was like on SlickDeals.net for like five dollars. <laughs> like seriously, five dollars. You know, I mean, you don't have to buy the cheapest light set. Anybody can afford a twenty-five dollar light set. They don't have to buy the five dollar one. Because in the end, you're going to regret it. And with me, with that purchase, you know, I spent 17 bucks, 
I used it for a couple of rides, but then I just stopped using it. Like that was $17 down the drain and I would have been better off, you know, waiting to get a, a better light set if I could have afforded it, you know, later or whatever. So that's my two cents. Okay. What about the flip side of that argument? What about spending too much on a mountain bike? How's that a mistake? Yeah, I think this one is probably a lot easier to do because it means the same thing with cars or houses. You can spend too much on just about anything out there. And the salesperson definitely wants to push, you know, the nicest and most expensive and blingiest bike on you. But, you know, you've got to be honest with yourself about how you're actually going to use the bike, what you actually need of a mountain bike, you know, what your budget is. And consider things like the rule of diminishing returns. You know, my opinion, your performance increase on a bike really per dollar per dollar expenditure really drops off rapidly past the three or four thousand dollar mark and you continue to get gains but not huge gains you know whereas down low you know jumping from one thousand to two thousand dollars is going to make a huge difference so it's pretty easy to spend too much and not get more for that money yeah exactly you know you kind of touched on it but you need to be honest about what you're going to be riding, you know, what your trails are. Like, for instance, you know, don't buy a downhill bike if you don't have access to downhill terrain. If you don't live somewhere where you can hit a bike park up, you know, several times a year to make it worth it, then that's just, you know, not not a smart purchase necessarily. Um, and I'd say the same thing goes for a lot of the current, you know, enduro bikes. You know, if you live in Ohio, chances are you probably don't need a 160 or 170 mil travel trail bike. You know you'll have more fun on a shorter travel bike. Yeah, I know there are some people that say, uh, one commenter in particular who shall remain nameless, let's say they'd rather have the the extra suspension as like insurance, you know? And, you know, there are merits to that argument, but you you really have to consider the, the terrain you're, you're going to be riding most often. Like, where are you going to be spending 90 plus percent of your time? You know, so, you know, for instance, again, let's say you live somewhere in central Ohio, Maybe a 100-millimeter bike would be perfectly suited to your trails, but you decide to go with a 120-mil travel bike instead just to have that little extra cushion. You know, I'm just saying be reasonable. You know, if you pick a shitty enough line, all the suspension in the world is not going to bail you out anyway. Right. And I would say, too, a lot of us fall prey to sort of the marketing and the, the videos that we see online of people you know, riding really, really well on the latest, you know, Santa Cruz mountain bike that costs $7,000. And, you know, some of us are tricked into thinking, you know what, if I just buy that bike, I can ride like that. And I mean, that's, it seems pretty obvious, but people do fall for it. So if, if that's kind of your line of thinking right now, uh, let me tell you that you will not ride like those riders in the videos just by upgrading your bike to a more expensive bike. <laughs> um, and then along the same lines too, like think about your financial situation and, and don't spend too much on a bike because uh, if you do suddenly need that, you know, $7,000 back because, you know, you got in a car wreck or you got a medical bill or something, you're not going to be able to sell that bike for nearly what you paid for it. So um, again, don't, don't overspend on a bike because you're going to run into problems potentially there. Yeah. I would like to reiterate what Jeff said about not getting your money back. Like, uh, I don't ever consider a bike purchase like an investment or that I'm ever going to be able to recoup that cost or get anywhere near it. You know, I get, 
you were talking about like advice and questions in this podcast. I get questions all the time from people looking to buy bikes, but I had one recently from someone looking to sell a bike and it was, I mean, it was old school, you know, it was probably hot shit like back in the mid nineties, but I was just like, if you get a couple hundred bucks out of this bike, you're going to be doing well, you know, and I'm sure that's not what they wanted to hear. So it's, you got to keep that stuff in perspective for sure. Right. And I think people too, you know, speaking of treating a mountain bike like an investment, I think sometimes people trick themselves into thinking, oh, you know, if I get this really light cross country mountain bike, like I'm going to start winning races and like, I'm going to pay it back that way. And hopefully no one thinks that you can't people, win you can't win any money in bike racing so let me go ahead and just right put that out there exactly. now <laughs> but people people believe it I, and i'm guessing these are younger people right like kids in high school maybe college kids you know might have that perception but the thing is nobody buys a mountain bike to win races if you're good enough that you're winning races that have cash payouts you're getting those bikes for free typically because you're sponsored by the bike company so you know, don't, don't buy a bike in anticipation of, you know, winning a bunch of races because you bought that bike. Okay. So speaking of spending a lot of money on bike stuff, what about spending money in the wrong places? There are any number of ways you can upgrade your bike. Uh, but some of those upgrades are more beneficial than others, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think all mountain bikers probably go through this. They, they get their first bike, they spend what they think is way too much money on it, but they, they do it anyway and they start riding and then, you know, you really get into riding and you start, you know, you want to make upgrades to your bike. So you start spending money on different things, swapping things out and that's fun. You know, it's like, it's part of the, part of the whole experience of mountain biking, but you know, it's, it's easy. Once you catch upgrade itis, it's kind of hard to beat it back. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with spending money uh, upgrading your bike, but you need to spend it where it's going to have the most impact on ride quality or performance. You know, for instance, like a 70 millimeter Thompson stem weighs 140 grams and costs 100 bucks, you know, and that's kind of like the reference, you know, high end stem for the industry. You know, you could get an Envy stem uh, of the same length and it weighs 99 grams, so you're saving a whopping 41 grams but it also costs 265 dollars you know so you're talking you could buy two and two-thirds thompson stems (laughs) for the same money and you know it's a very marginal difference in weight and it's you know a stem is a stem basically it's there to hold your handlebars to your fork so that's not a, a wise place to spend your money i think the best places and components you know to upgrade you know number one that the least expensive is probably going to be tires, you know, so if you have crap tires or worn out tires, getting a new set of tires is a, a easy and relatively affordable way to completely change the uh, performance of your bike. And then related is your wheels. So, you know, that can be better rims, that can be lighter spokes, you know, that could be a, a quicker engaging hub. So any kind of anything to do with the wheels is that's where I think your money is best spent at least first. And then Moving on from there, suspension components, you know, those are definitely uh, very expensive, but, you know, maybe if you have a kind of a mid-grade fork, you can upgrade your damper cartridge inside it or, you know, send it off to a tuning company to get, to get uh, you know, tuned for your specific weight and riding style. And then actually cranks are surprisingly kind of a, a good 
spot to save a lot of weight, you know, going from a, a really inexpensive crank to a high end crank, you can save a significant uh, amount of weight. And uh, that's always a good thing. Okay. So moving beyond financial mistakes as they relate to mountain biking, let's talk about bike setup and maintenance and repair and all that kind of stuff. Aaron, I know you're a big proponent uh, and a bit of a stickler for bike setup. So talk about that a little bit. How, what are some of the common mistakes people make when setting up their mountain bike? Yeah, I definitely am a stickler for this. You know, and there's a whole lot that falls into this category. I mean, we could probably just talk about this in an episode by itself. But, uh, you know, it's surprising to me how many riders, even fairly seasoned ones, you know, fail to set their bikes up properly. You know, at a bare minimum, you need to be checking your tire pressure every ride. And you need to be te- checking your suspension pressures every few rides. You know, I... I it boggles my mind how many times I, you know, someone's like, "Oh, my bike's riding like shit," and I'm like, "Well, when's the last time you, you know, checked your suspension?" And they're like, "Um, a year ago, when I got the bike." And you're like, oh, "It just, it makes my heart hurt." So when you're talking about checking your tire pressure every ride, what kind of check are you talking about? Hooking it up to the pump and seeing what psi you're at, or is it just just grabbing the tire and saying that feels good? A, a little bit of both. I mean, you know, if you're riding your bike almost daily, then you can probably get a, get by with a quick squeeze of the tire and go, eh, that's all right. But I mean, if you're riding once a week, then yeah, like you should be checking your tire pressure every single ride because I mean, you know, changes in the weather can uh, affect your tire pressure. So it may have been fine when you put it in the shed on saturday and you come out next weekend to ride it and you know you could be five or ten psi down so i'm pretty religious i check my i almost always uh mount my uh pump up and and check the pressure um it only takes a second so why not and you know other other areas i notice cockpit setup is a big one for me um improper bar roll so that's like the the sweep of your bars like if it's you know, if it's ro- if your bars rolled too far back, the ends of your bars are actually going down, and then if it's rolled too far forward, they're like up, and it's just it's just it's just weird. It's not good. It's not good for you know your body positioning. It's it's uh, you know probably going to cause hand fatigue and things like that. And the positioning of the controls is another one. A lot of people run their brakes like too far in towards the grips, and and people just ride their bikes like that. I think a lot of it is because that's how the bike was built at the shop and then they just take it home and ride it like that but you know what you bought the bike it's your bike move things around if the you know if you're squeezing the brakes and the and you know like every brake should be one finger braking you know so if you can't grab the end of the brake with your index finger then you need to move your brakes around you know if you're bumping your thumb against the shifter when you're cruising along the trail then it's too close and you need to move it away like these are very easy things to do, and yeah, I don't. I just don't understand why people deal with these issues that are easily solvable. I guess you know that's what's maddening to me. It's like, oh, my brakes, my like I can't reach my brakes. Well, have you moved them? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> why? Why not? Right. And this, I mean, this maybe ties into the <laughs> saving money aspect as well. You know, a lot of people. Uh, may feel like there's something wrong with their bike and that they need a new bike or they need to upgrade a part when a lot of times it's as simple as just setting your bike up properly and dialing in a few of the settings on it. Absolutely. Yeah, and even you know with setup maybe it's a small a small part swap that's gonna fix something for you you know it's amazing sometimes when we go to demos and somebody be like oh this bike feels a hundred times better than this other bike and it's like well 
the bar is shorter on this bike or it's wider on that other bike and it fits you better, you know, whereas, you know, with a quick hacksaw or a, you know, pipe cutter, you're, you've adjusted your bar to fit you, you know? So sometimes you can take it even one step beyond just spinning a wrench and a small component switch will make your bike ride a million times better. So there's a lot you can do on a bike to make it better for you, which I think is one of the cool things about biking versus some other sports is that you can constantly be working on this stuff to improve performance for your personal needs. So another mistake that a lot of mountain bikers are guilty of, myself included, is using high pressure hoses to wash mountain bikes. I know when I was starting out, I was really proud of myself when I figured out that I could go to one of those like self-serve car washes and, you know, throw a bunch of quarters in and get my bike like super clean after a muddy ride. Uh, but it turns out that's a bad idea. Greg, you've written uh, at least one really popular article about washing mountain bikes. What's your take on using high-pressure hoses? Don't do it. Um, no, I, I generally try to use a, a garden hose, but even with a garden hose, like I try to make sure I'm not spraying the grease out of my bearings or um, important parts of my bike. So I stand a long ways back. Um, rinse the big, you know, chunks off and get the bike wet and then try to use a brush to do the major work and then finish up with another rinse down. But I mean, you really do need to be careful with that. Another thing that some people do, I mean, (laughs) I tend towards the other end of the spectrum, but some people do wash their bikes too often, uh, which some people might disagree with me on that, but your bike doesn't need to be washed every ride unless you're riding in really horrendous conditions, you know? So I generally wash my bike when it needs it. And if it's really dry out, it might only need it once a month if I'm like looming my chain. If it's wet or generally in the summer here, we ride up high and the trails don't drain as well, so they're a bit muddier, could be every ride, you know? So this is Again, this it, it takes a little decision on your part to understand like when your bike is dirty enough to require a wash, but washing too often can be just as bad. Yeah, and I, I know you'll see if you watch um, you know kind of any coverage from World Cup mountain bike racing or cyclocross, you'll see these mechanics and they're they're spraying off these bikes with high pressure hoses. But you know these are professional athletes and they have dedicated mechanics who are tearing those bikes down, you know, on a daily basis and rebuilding them fully with new bearings and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's why they can get away with it. You know, that's their job and they have someone to take care of it for them. So unless you have, you know, your own mechanic or you just like swapping out bearings, don't use high pressure on your bike. Right. That's what I was going to say as well is that when you're washing dirt and other grime and stuff off your bike, you're also washing off stuff that's supposed to be on there like lube and grease and, you know, even the coating on your frame itself. So again, that's why you gotta, you gotta find the right balance between washing often uh, or not washing at all because, and if you do wash too much, uh, then you got to make sure you're putting the stuff back on. You're re-lubing your chain, you're re-greasing, you know, whatever parts got degreased so that you do maintain your bike properly. So speaking of proper maintenance, uh, what about maintenance intervals? I think a lot of us maybe are aware that we're supposed to do certain things to our bike every so often, uh, but a lot of times we don't. And that can be a big mistake, right, Aaron? Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of this with suspension components. And that's probably 
you know, one of the more critical ones for maintenance intervals. Fox says you need a full service uh, once a year or every 125 hours, whichever comes first. RockShox has 50, 100, and 200 hour interval services for different parks, parts inside the fork. You know, in regular maintenance, it's not only going to improve your suspension performance, but it's going to make your fork last longer or your shock last longer in the long run. You know, if you're a confident home mechanic, there's a lot of this you can do at home. I think the kind of what prevents me from working on my suspension more often at home is it's just kind of kind of one of the more pain in the ass things to do at home. You know, there's a lot you have to take off the bike and you want to be very clean. So you want to be sure you have like your shop is clean. You have very clean work surfaces that you're using gloves that the fork itself is like really as clean as you can get it before you start cracking that open because you don't want dirt getting inside the fork once that stuff's inside there it's going to start causing havoc so if you're not confident take it to your local shop i mean that's why it's really good to have uh you know build a relationship with a, a good mountain bike shop that can work on suspension components you know not every shop is equipped to do that so uh you know depending on where you live it may be better to send it off to a, some sort of tuning company which you know, can cost a lot of money and then you're, you know, you're stuck for a little bit longer without your fork. But generally when you send to companies like that, they'll not only will they rebuild it, but they'll rebuild it. So it's, it's uh, more tuned just for you, which is pretty cool. Another simple thing you can do in terms of like maintenance intervals is to get a chain checker. I know Jeff's a big fan of the chain checker. It's a pretty cheap tool. You can get one from your local bike shop and you know, staying on top of chain wear and replacing your chain as needed is going to really help uh, keep those more expensive drivetrain components, namely your um, cassette and your chain ring. It's going to keep those running longer. So uh, that's a good idea to get one of those. And, you know, just regular maintenance just keeps your bike in good shape. And, you know, inspecting your bike regularly is going to bring any problems to your attention. I know more than once I've been cleaning my bike and seeing a crack in the frame. So, uh, that's why it's kind of every, every few rides you should kind of go, maybe if you don't clean your bike thoroughly, you should at least inspect it closely because, uh, you know, it's better to catch a crack in your frame while it's on the work stand than, you know, jumping off of something. So another related mistake that people make when it comes to bike maintenance is that they don't always have the right tools for the job. So a lot of people starting out might think, you know, all you need is a multi-tool, and you're good to go with a bike or maybe they think that all they need is you know they've got a bunch of tools for woodworking and working on plumbing but those aren't quite the same as having proper bike tools right yeah a set of chisels and a table saw is not going to really help when it comes time to work on your bike hammers are pretty handy though they can be surprisingly no you you really can do uh, a pretty impressive amount of work to your bike with just a handful of hex wrenches but there are also a lot of bike specific tools out there um you know and these are very task specific tools they not only make your life easier but they also keep you from causing uh more damage to your bike like don't try to install a bottom bracket using a pair of vice grips which uh when i worked in a bike shop i saw that you know, several times. And yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some, you know, you have some highly specialized bike tools that are very expensive, but you know, the vast majority of the tools are going to pay for themselves after a few uses. Okay. So switching gears a little bit, talking more about actually riding bikes. Now, one of the mistakes that we see is mountain bikers getting ahead of themselves in terms of their skill level. 
And one of the areas that that is most common is switching to clipless pedals too soon. So how can that mistake be avoided? How do you know when you're ready to switch to clipless pedals? That's a good question. I don't know um, if there's like a definitive answer for that. Like you've ridden X number of hours, so now you're ready. But yeah, I think uh, I just think you should take your time with it. You know, I like to swap back and forth between clipless and flat pedals because they both have their advantages. You know, for technical climbing and just pure efficiency, it's really hard to beat clipless. But for uh, you know jumping and playing around flats, I think most people would agree are more fun. You know, however, a lot of riders make the jump too soon, and uh, I think it's just part of like wanting to get there too soon. You know, it's just like. Like oh, I'm just I'm so stoked on riding. I just I just want all the gear. You know, I want all all the things right now. But riding in flats is really going to teach you a lot better fundamentals, so that when you do make this uh, switch to clipless, you'll you'll be a better rider for it. You know, it's gonna it's gonna teach you how to be really planted, how to like kind of drive the bike with your feet. It's gonna you know teach you how to bunny hop properly, so you're not cheating and using the you using your clipless pedals to pull the rear end of the bike up because you know that's that's improper technique and so it's just it's important to have those fundamentals down before you start you know adding different things to the mix yeah i definitely remember a lot of peer pressure around the whole clipless pedals thing and you know that was kind of the main reason i guess that i switched to clipless pedals but i think it's it points to a broader lesson which is to know sort of where your skills are at and don't feel pressured to necessarily uh, do things that you're not comfortable with or that, you know, you're not ready for. I think with the clipless thing, especially these days, you know, we, we almost need to examine like the language you were using in this question. And it's like, when are you ready to switch to clipless as if it's this natural progression and the pros and the best people all use clipless. And now it's like flats and flat shoes are so good that, yeah, you can't be clipless for like endurance riding, but for pretty much everything else, you know, you don't need clipless pedals. And back when I switched, flats weren't as quality as they are now. We didn't have like the nice 510 shoes. And part of me wishes I never, ever switched to clipless pedals, you know, because now, like Aaron was saying, I use them as a bit of a crutch. So, you know, I think back in the day, we, we viewed this as sort of a natural progression, but now I don't think that's necessarily the case. That's a good point. And hey, flats are always there waiting for you, Greg. You can come back anytime. I'm scared now, man. I'm super scared. <laughs> no, maybe maybe I should. That that could be fun. All right, so one mistake that mountain bikers make from time to time is that they go out for a ride unprepared. And this is one of those mistakes that can have really serious consequences, right? So let's talk about uh, some of the ways that people can be unprepared and then how can we avoid that. One way to be unprepared is not to have enough food and water. And sometimes this just means you're thirsty or you're a little hungry. Other times this means, you know, you can get into, with a lot of these things, I think you can get into a life and death situation if you take to the extreme. So not having enough food means you could bonk. And if you're a long ways out there and you bonk, you know, you might not have the energy to get back to where you need to be. But water generally is the big one. You know, we're talking dehydration, heat stroke, and possible death. So... You know, you want to make sure you've got enough of these things. And for your ride distance, for the temperature you're riding at, you know, there's a lot of variables. So it's not one of these things where I can tell you, hey, you need to have 
num this number of fluid ounces of water or something. You know, you you really have to learn to um, judge these things. One thing that I've started doing is uh, carrying water treatment chemicals with me on my rides. So uh, even when I'm out, if I don't pack enough water or if I consciously don't pack enough water, I can plan to refill water along the way. But that only works if you have streams and water sources. If you're riding in a desert environment or if maybe you haven't had all that much rain in a stream that's normally flowing isn't, then again, you're in a bad situation. So there's a lot of things to think about. Make sure you're prepared in this front. Yeah, a good way is to just have your kit ready to go at all times. You know, so keep everything together. If, if you have, if you use a hydration pack, just leave your pump and your tube and your tools in there so that you know it's always ready to go when you grab it. And try to, when you're getting ready for a ride, if it's a big ride, uh, you know, try to get everything ready the night before. So in the morning when your buddies are knocking on the door, you know, to pick you up that you're not scrambling around trying to remember everything and throw it in a bag real quick. That's usually how you forget something, which I know we've all been there. Yeah. I, this is the one area where I've probably made the most mistakes. You know, I've been unprepared for pretty much everything on here, food, water, tools, spare items, clothing, you name it. There's at least some ride that I've forgotten or haven't brought one of these things. And like Aaron said, you know, I try to keep my pack pretty well stocked with all the items, you know, sort of emergency items that I might need so that I don't have to think about it every time. So I've got a couple of cliff bars in my pack that have probably been in there for months because I haven't had to use them, but you know, it's good to know that they're there. And, uh, you know, yeah, like, like you said, you can't, you can't be too prepared for a ride. Yeah. You know, and, and like you said, at one time or another, all of us are going to need some assistance from our riding buddies, but just don't be the guy that shows up to every single ride without the basics. You know, that is so annoying when you're the same person like week after week, who gets a flat and then is like, um, do you have a tube? <laughs> uh, do you have a pump? It's like, you know, that's, that's a good way to stop getting invited on rides. Another thing when you're showing up to a ride, make sure your bike is working. And this is a rule that I always try to follow, but recently I, uh, there was something I meant to fix and I didn't and I showed up and my bike's not working. You know, that's not a good thing. You know, the bike you bring, make sure to the best of your knowledge that is in working order and that will make your friends a lot happier with you and you will have a much better time. Yeah. And yeah, that's a good point. And on a related note, I just thought of it, you know, if don't make any major changes to your bike, you know, before a big ride, um, without doing a test ride first. So, you know, if you know, you're going to do a 50 mile ride on Saturday, don't spend Friday night, you know, putting it on a new fork and installing some new brakes and swapping tires. Cause without a shakedown ride because you you may show up to the trail and things aren't going to be right so yeah no major changes before a big ride yeah that's a really good one i've been guilty of that myself many times and it rarely works out well <laughs> okay so we asked this question actually to our single tracks readers we asked about some mistakes that they've made along the way and that they've learned from in terms of mountain biking and single tracks readers ziphead said that one of the mistakes he made early on was refusing an after-ride beer. And I, I personally I haven't been in that situation myself. I've never refused a beer, I don't think. But I know what he's saying, you know, which is that a lot of times 
writers will get in the habit of writing by themselves or just thinking, oh, you know, there's nobody that's going to be going my pace or it's too much trouble to coordinate, you know, what time to meet people and do all that. I'm just going to go for a ride on my own. And that's a mistake I made for many years, which was just, you know, going out on rides solo usually because I was just didn't want to deal with the hassle of trying to coordinate things. But, but what I found is mountain biking is just so much more fun when you ride with others. And not only that, it's safer. You know, again, I've, I've probably made mistakes where I've ridden solo and stuff happened, you know, I had a, had a flat or, you know, needed a part or something and I was by myself and, you know, that's, that's not good and not safe. So that's something hopefully others can learn from. Okay. Another mistake. What about people who treat every ride like a race? On paper, that sounds like a good thing, right? That we're being aggressive and we're going out and really working hard every time. But that can be a mistake, right, Aaron? Yeah, and this is something that I have made a conscious effort over the last couple of years to to avoid doing that. You know, it could just be the group that I ride with, but I expect not. Um, you know, I think inherently mountain biking is competitive and you get people who are inherently competitive riding inherently competitive sport and all of a sudden you have a race on your hands and it's fine to turn the screws on one another on the climbs and pin it on the descents but also it's important to you know take time to enjoy the views so maybe instead of cresting the the ridge and just bombing down the backside like take a few minutes and grab a snack and just enjoy the view and enjoy the company you're with you know and apart from just the chilling out aspect you know smashing your brains out on every single ride is a really good way to burn yourself out or get overuse injuries so that's something to consider as well and you know it's if you're training for something you need to vary your training you can't just go hard all the time and expect to get faster it won't work after a certain point another thing that a lot of mountain bikers do that's a mistake is they ignore advice from experienced mountain bikers or people who have been doing the sport from a little bit longer. And I guess this is something in pretty much every aspect of our lives uh, that a lot of us are guilty of. Greg, what's your take on taking advice from more experienced riders? I mean, like you said, Jeff, I think this is something that we can be a mistake in all areas of life, you know, thinking we know it all, thinking we we're you know, we're super experienced and we're the best that can ever be. And there's always wisdom to be gained from all sorts of avenues, even unlikely ones. And with mountain biking, it's people that um, have been riding longer than you, or maybe they haven't, but they have more experience in some other realm than you do. So I try to never assume I know it all. I try to like learn from all the people around me and at least, you know, listen and consider, um, but I think uh, parallel mistakes sometimes can be, uh, if you're on the giving end, giving too much advice to other mountain bikers. And sometimes you can come off like an asshole instead of an old sage. You know, it's interesting, like, people aren't always super receptive. Like, they don't necessarily want to be hearing advice from you all the time. It really depends on the person. So, I know for me, I try not to give advice unless it's asked for. Or someone's complaining about something that I know the answer to. Or there's a possibility that they could kill themselves, like not wearing a helmet out on the trail, which I saw the other day. And uh, But even in those situations, you know, saying, hey, you're going to kill yourself is not the best approach to take, you know. So, But you, you also can't stand there and not say anything and just give it your stamp of approval because 
they, they could very well die. So, you know, other than that, I try to let people figure things out on their own or read our articles here on single tracks. Yeah. I've also had this kind of work in the reverse where a, uh, you know, more seasoned rider doesn't want to take advice from someone that they see as, you know, not up to their skill level, even though maybe they're making valid points. Yeah. And that brings up the whole idea of, you know, sort of judging other mountain bikers. That's a mistake. A lot of us make is you might look at somebody and say, Oh, that that's an old guy. You know what? That guy's going to be slow or that person isn't going to be able to ride over that, that technical log stack or something. But I've kind of stopped making those judgments because I've been wrong so many times about people. Um, so yeah, I would, I would definitely advise people to not judge people and, and just give them a chance to show you what they're capable of. And a lot of times you're going to be surprised and then you can learn from those people. Um, you know, I've, I've always been in awe of older riders, much older riders, uh, than me who are able to ride faster or harder or longer than me. And so I always, you know, approach those people and say, you know, what's your secret? How are you able to keep doing this? Because that's, that's where I want to be when I'm, you know, approaching your age. So I definitely recommend, uh, trying to get as much advice as you can from more experienced riders. Another sort of nuance of this is that just because you learn something one way at one point in the past doesn't mean that that thing won't change in the future. Um, bikes change a lot, you know, trails change, and our techniques and the things we do have to change with them. I remember the way I first learned to climb on a mountain bike worked all right at the time, and it was part of it was the types of bikes we were riding, but now, like, my technique has changed over time because people have taught me new ways to look at things and do things differently and it works better. And sometimes you have to um, look at the things you thought you knew that were right and say, Hey, these aren't working out the way they used to for me, you know, and, and learn new things. So, which can be tough. Another mistake that I've personally made from time to time is overestimating my own mountain bike skills or fitness levels. Greg, has this ever been a problem for you? Have you ever made this mistake? That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's something we can all fall prey to. I think one of the things with skills that's really nice about biking is you can always get off and walk your bicycle, you know. And and I'm not afraid to do that. And sometimes I, like, roll up something. I'm, like, pretty sure I can do this, but I'm not feeling it today. So I'm just going to walk my bike and I just don't really feel any shame in doing that anymore. So, but you know, I still crash and still get hurt, but you know, I think that's a part of it. I think another thing with the fitness is sometimes it's really good to have a plan B. Like you make a, you make a ride plan, let's say, especially a big ride out in the mountains, you want to do a loop, but it's a good idea to know ways that you can either shorten your ride or adjust for situations like weather moving in or if your fitness isn't up to it, like how are you going to bail out? If you don't have a bailout option, you know, you're, you're quite committed. So, you know, it depends a lot on specifically where you're riding, but sometimes you can be on a, a trail that's just one trail going through this big area and there are no junctions. And then you're pretty committed to completing that trail or turning around at some point you'll get past a point where going forward is easier than turning around, but going forward can still be really difficult. So, and then you can get in a spot where you don't want to be. <laughs> so you got to be honest with yourself, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. And you know, it's also important to remember that there's no 
real standardization for trail difficulty. You know, it's all kind of relative to the the local system more or less. So, you know, you may be able to absolutely slay that black diamond trail in Florida where you live, but you know, you head out to Moab or you go to Whistler and a black diamond trail is all of a sudden way above your skill set. So, you know, if you're riding somewhere new, just take your time to get acclimated to the to the local trail ratings. Yeah, and that goes for fitness as well. I've tricked myself into thinking after living in Colorado for several years that, you know, once I came back to the East Coast that, you know, I'd just be able to ride anything and just ride for days because I'd have Colorado lungs. But that's that's not the case in case you're under that impression. So don't don't be overconfident and, you know, bite off more than you can chew because I've had that bite me in the butt a couple times. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, for me very well seasoned rider at this point and i can tackle some big rides but you know just because you can do a 30 or 40 mile ride on your home trails you know you go somewhere else and the miles don't transfer like one to one you know a good example is going to pisgah you know a lot of times like the you know locals will tell you that they measure rides in hours not miles because you might go out and you might be out in the woods for six hours and you get back and you've gone 19 miles or it may be not quite that bad, but you know, it, it'll be less mileage than you're, than you're used to getting. It's just because the trails are, are so much tougher. Yeah. I just actually finished a ride report on a ride we did in Arkansas, which you're like, ah, Arkansas, you know, what's the big deal. And the ride was four and a half hours, which isn't you know too bad, but we only covered 18 miles in that four and a half hours, which is like four and a half miles an hour. And we climbed almost 3000 feet. And, uh, yeah, I was just writing this up. I was like, yeah, that was a really tough ride. And it doesn't look like a lot of mileage, but I don't know. Yeah, we, I got worked. So you, you never know till you're out there, right? Exactly. Another mistake that a lot of mountain bikers make is riding the same trails over and over. This is one that I had a hard time understanding initially, you know, several years ago when we were starting single tracks, uh, because, you know, my My whole passion is about finding new trails and exploring new places. So riding the same trails over and over to me is a mistake in that you're missing out on a lot of great stuff. And Greg, I think you're of a similar mindset, right? Yeah, I love exploring new trails. And like, that's why I first started using single tracks is to find new trails. You know, um, to me, that's a big part of what mountain biking is, is experiencing new places and new things and uh, challenging yourself in new and different ways. So riding the same trails over and over can be fun and it can be easy, but I get so much benefit out of exploring for sure. On the flip side, you can also make a mistake by riding new trails all the time. And I found this out as well. You know, I guess I, I jump between two extremes, but I found that riding a new trail every weekend didn't always give me a lot of chances to work on my skills progression. So every time I would ride a new trail, I would use the excuse of, oh, I didn't know that obstacle was coming up, so that's why I didn't ride it, or that kind of thing. Whereas what I found, if I rode the same trail, say, week in and week out, um, you know, I would find myself progressing and making it through more of the obstacles than I did the time before and really stopping to take the time to hone those skills. Have you guys found similar things? 
I think it can depend a little bit what kind of progression you're looking for too and how much progression you need in your life. <laughs> you know, maybe the type of progression you're looking for is seeing new places and exploring new things, but you know, skills progression is very tangible. I think one of the easy ways to combat that is instead of trying to beat a Strava time for somebody on some trail you've never ridden is just walking back and doing the obstacle until you nail it, even if you've never done it before. But one thing I have to ask myself is how much progression I need in my life too. You know, for instance, I could work on progressing my downhill skiing skills, but since I reached a very high uh, expert level in my teenage years, for me trying to continue progressing now would basically mean, you know, a lot of broken bones and uh, in injuries, I would have to, you know, go huge and be hucking like 30, 40 foot cliffs to be progressing because I've already hit like an expert level. So Sometimes I think you got to be honest with yourself and be like, yeah, I progressed as much as I need to. And now I'm just having fun. Yeah, it can be easy to get you know stuck in a rut on the same trails. But I think you just have to be proactive in exploring places that you maybe think, you know, already I've I've been doing this my myself recently quite a bit, you know, exploring the gravel roads and the double track and the little side trails that I've kind of always wondered I wonder where that goes. Like instead of wondering anymore, I'm I'm kind of going out and seeing where they take me. So I've already in the you know the past few weekends been exposed to some really cool trails and you know awesome views and beautiful creeks and stuff that you know we're right in an area that I've been riding for years, but I just never you know I kind of stuck to the to the main thoroughfare and hadn't really ventured out and explored the rest of the forest. So sometimes you just kind of got to get after it. Right on. One mistake that a lot of beginner mountain bikers make is riding wet trails. And for some reason, beginners often think that getting muddy is a part of mountain biking or that it's cool or, you know, it's, it's exciting. But hopefully that's one that most of us have already learned, that riding wet trails is not good for the trails. It's not good for your bike. And honestly, it's, it's not that fun. I mean, aside from getting muddy and, you know, that's kind of different, you feel like a kid it's also, yeah, it's just gross. So <laughs> so for all those reasons, mountain biking on wet trails and in the mud is a mistake. All right. So speaking of taking care of our trails, uh, a lot of a big mistake that a lot of mountain bikers make is that they'll complain about a mountain bike trail or uh, a feature on a trail and they'll, they'll use this word they. They'll say, why did they make the trail like this? Or why don't they you know, expand this trail system. But the mistake there is that we are part of the day, right? Yeah, I think you could call this mistake apathy. You know, you really need to get involved if you want your trails to look a certain way or you want to have certain features. You need to speak up, not only just speak up, you need to, you know, put your work and your sweat and your uh, effort where your mouth is too. Another sort of related thing is just assuming that you always have good trails because they've always been there seemingly uh, is a mistake too because trails require maintenance just to stay the way they are otherwise they'll degrade over time and even many times mountain bikers have lost access to single track that they've ridden for decades so you know never take your trails for granted never take what you have for granted and uh, and be involved and be there and make a difference for your local community. Agreed. You know, I know in the BMX and like dirt jump community, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the, the saying is no dig, no ride. And I think that kind of applies to trail riding as well. So if you're not out there helping 
dig the trails and build them, then you don't really get, uh, you don't have the right to bitch about it, you know? And I know personally, I've, you know, I have complained about changes to trails immediately after they happen, but you know, it takes time for the trail to wear back in and for the forest to grow back in around it, you know? And after a couple of years, you don't even remember what you were whining about in the first place. <laughs> so I know like people are like, Oh, this is this machine cut trail. They came in here and it's four feet wide. And it's like, well, yeah, it, it was a hell of a lot easier and cheaper than, you know, using manual labor to come in and bench cut this hill. Uh, so, you know, so yeah, maybe it doesn't look awesome for a season or two, but after a while, you know, it'll, it'll grow back in to where it's true single track and yeah, it'll just be an awesome trail again. Okay. This is the last mistake and it's along the same lines. Uh, one of the mistakes that mountain bikers make again, beginners, maybe beginners make the most mistakes, but damn it, beginners get it together. Well, well, hopefully they'll listen to this podcast and and learn from all this, but a lot of mistake is moving or modifying objects on a trail to make them easier. Why is that a faux pas, Aaron? Yeah, that's a big, big no, no. Don't do that. If you can't ride a feature because your skills aren't there yet, don't make changes to the trail just to make it easier for you. You know, you're just one trail user. There are plenty of other riders out there that can ride that feature and they ride that trail because that feature is there and they like to hit it. So, you know, this goes back to what Greg was saying. If you can't ride something, walk it. You know, there's no shame in walking. I think you probably feel like there's some shame early on, but I'm definitely in Greg's boat now where I'm like, eh, you know, I'd I don't care. I'm 35 years old. If I'm not comfortable riding something, you know, no one's going to peer pressure me into doing it. So yeah, if I'm not feeling it, I'm going to walk it. If it's above my skill level, I'm going to walk it. So yeah, don't change the trail just to suit your current skill level. Instead, keep trying that obstacle until you can ride it yourself. Yeah. And for more advanced riders who know this rule and have taken it to heart over the years, I think there's a more nuanced answer, too, that is use your common sense. And if something is truly uh, on a trail that's not supposed to be there, then take a minute to move it out of the way. Um, Don't just ride around, you know, a branch that's like at hip height uh, because nobody's going to jump that or or try to limbo under it. You know, if it's it's something that's truly in the way, uh, take a second to move it. But if you're a beginner and you're like, I don't know, I don't think anybody could ride this just leave it there. Some let somebody else make that decision. But if you're advanced and you know what you're looking at, help out when you're on the trail. Well, great. Hopefully these tips have been helpful and people can learn from these mountain bike mistakes. We'd love to hear your feedback or answer any questions that you might have about mountain biking. You can always email any of us at single tracks. Our email addresses are our first name at singletracks.com. So I'm Jeff at singletracks.com. You can get in touch with me or Greg or Aaron anytime over email that way. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.